All right. Welcome, everybody, to uh, First Responder Awareness. Uh, I'm Sean. Then we have Jay. Say hi, Jay. Hello. Then we got David. Say hi, David. Howdy. And then we do have one other member who is currently away on a call for an MVA with, I think I heard it was a uh, tanker truck on fire. So we hope everything goes well over there with him. And uh, before we completely start, I would just like to say, uh, while I was driving home earlier today, I was listening to the radio and heard something about Ukraine, and it made me think about what those Ukrainian firefighters have been having to deal with with all those incendiary bombs and whatnot. So I would just personally like to send my uh, condolences to the ones who have been lost. And, uh, yeah, definitely. I think, I think Ukrainian firefighters, uh, I'd like to send prayers and condolences their way and, uh, wish them, you know, the best in what they're dealing with at this current, current situation. David, anything you'd like to add to that? My prayers are out for Ukrainian firefighters and the frontline members helping out Ukraine. Uh, I mean, in the middle of, in the middle of a war right now, so, uh, I can't imagine us doing that, but hey, got some brave ass firefighters over there, but all my prayers and thoughts to them. Who would like to uh, start out? So, uh, I mean, we, we, we got a list of topics to talk about tonight. Um, I mean, why don't we talk about uh, truck positioning on MBAs? I mean, seeing as how we were on the subject of an MBA earlier. Oh, that's true, that's true. So, uh, Jay, you used to be uh, an instructor of sorts, right? Yeah, yeah. So I used to uh, instruct other smaller fire departments, uh, SCDA classes, uh, search and rescue classes, wildland classes. All uh, right. Classes, a whole, whole list of things. Well, it sounds like you're going to be our uh, expert when it comes to trying to explain things for people because I know personally I'm somewhat new to the job. I've been... Uh, a firefighter for about seven months, uh, going on eight months here at the uh, end of the month. So, Jay, why don't you uh, explain to me a little bit about what position trucks should be in and why it's important? So basically, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't position an apparatus. Um, you know, some people call them trucks. Uh, an apparatus is just a different word for any any anybody out there that doesn't understand what the word apparatus means. It's just a different word for truck. Um, so you should never park your apparatuses in a straight line. Um, you should never park the apparatus in the lane of traffic, and it should it should be at an angle. It should be basically almost at a forty five degree angle. So that. That ensures, basically, you want to park it, and if I remember correctly, the NFPA standard. The NFPA standard says it has to be like 50, 50 to 65 feet back from the actual scene itself. I'd have to, I'd have to look that up. Nobody, nobody fact-checked me on that. It's um, all right. We probably won't. Um, I think that actually is true. I think it's like 70 feet, I believe, 60, somewhere through there. But 
Yeah, it's a distance. Uh, yeah. I'll probably take your word for it. It's probably 70. 70 sounds a lot better, in my opinion. Um, you know, if you should never... The reason why you, you park the trucks at an angle. So if somebody ends up rear-ending your apparatus, okay, and if you parked in a straight line, your apparatus is going to take more damage. So at an angle, it allows it to angle the vehicles. It, it allows to angle runaway vehicles or anything like that off to a certain direction. All right, now here's something that I would like to add because uh, I don't think you mentioned it when you said that trucks have to park at a 45-degree angle. Uh, normally when coming up to an accident, you want to point your uh, apparatus at a 45-degree angle. Let's say you're on the uh, right-hand shoulder. You want to park facing the front of your apparatus to the left-hand side. You want to encourage so, people to move over away from where you're working. You don't want to park so with your general, rear end sticking out. general rule of thumb is if you, let's say hypothetically, you're in a two-lane road, okay, um, which technically would be a four-lane uh, because you would have two going north, two going south, okay? And then some places have dividers. Some places don't. Some places just have a yellow line that divides that. Um, so let's say you're in the left lane going north, okay? And the wreck is on the opposite side of that. You need, basically, you want to shut down traffic as soon as possible. You know, um, firefighter safety is the biggest thing on MBAs. Um, you know, in our department, we're lucky enough that the sheriff's departments are always there with us, uh, and they will shut down all lanes of traffic for us to ensure safety. And also um, get in your way when responding. Yes, yeah, yeah, they always <laughs> seem to love to get in the way. Can't forget that little bit of information. They all, yeah, any well, cop ever loves to be in front of a fire truck. No. Yeah, to, to all our cop listeners, you love getting in the way. Um... My cops, like deputies around here, state troopers around here, they're actually very good about not being in the way. Because most of them were firefighters when they was younger and moved on. But most of the time, us firefighters, us and our PVVs and people that brought other trucks to the scene, have to completely block traffic because, you know, they got 18 wheelers, people who don't pay attention. It's just hard for us to do, to, to do the police's job, but also do our job at the same time. So, but, you know, but hopefully the next coming years that can change. But go back to what you were saying, Jay. So it it is, it is, okay. So I had to look up the NFPA standards because every, every firefighter knows NFPA is the golden law. They are the ultimate law for all fire departments around the nation. Yes. Um, so it is the blocker trucks. So you do have a blocker truck. Um, if you're running one apparatus, um, that is your blocker truck and responding truck at the same time. Most departments won't run just one truck. They'll run multiples. Um, it says the blocker truck may have to completely block off the entire roadway and make traffic come to a complete stop. So, yeah, I was pretty right on that. It is a 45-degree angle at 70 foot. Um, so, you know, you were, you were correct about that, David. Uh, so it is 70 feet out. 
Um, and it is so it can deflect traffic around the incident scene. Yeah. Um, for our incidents on the highway, because we got kind of like a major highway that goes from one state to another, well, from like a big city to another big city, um, we have to block off the entire interstate. So, you know, our first truck arriving on scene, second truck arriving on scene, I mean, will block traffic. I mean, that, that's. That's always the best thing is, you know, if you can block off the whole roadway that you're, you're seeing that, 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 you know, that the NBA has happened on, that's always the best thing. Um, you know, I don't know if y'all ran across this, but, you know, Texas Highway Patrol does not love shutting down the highway sometimes. Um, and I really don't agree with that. You know, I think firefighter safety should be the biggest thing. Um, and, I know well, probably... Now, I will interrupt you there with uh, the whole blocking off the entirety of the highway or the entirety of the interstate. Now, uh, I recently, this month, completed a class called Traffic Incident Management Awareness uh, through the, yeah, through the IFSI, and uh, it, it does a, it talks about shutting down how much of a road you need to shut down and how to properly direct traffic around an incident. And one of the main reasons why a lot of places don't like shutting down whole roadways is because of that uh, secondary accident zone in that forming line of traffic. That is one of the most dangerous places to be. Contrary to popular belief, it's not actually the original wreck. It's where that second wreck is going to happen. Yeah, but you have you have certain situations where, you know, blocking off the whole highway, in my opinion, is needed. You know, let's say it's raining, raining outside. Um, what happens if you're on a major highway? You know, I've seen it multiple times to where people don't pay attention to the giant red lights on the, you know, on our apparatuses, and they don't slow down. Um, I've seen people blow through an accident scene doing 60 miles an hour and then claim they never saw it. You know, yeah, cell phones are a distraction, radios are a distraction, kids are a distraction. You know, you look up and then boom, you're blowing through an, an, an incident. Yeah, now I will say, I agree that uh, best case scenario, the road can be shut down every time, the entire time. Best, that is like absolute heavenly scenario for firefighters. All I was it saying with that happen. statement was... Uh, I understand why they can't as often as we would prefer. Yeah, and, and I understand also why they why they can't um, because it, it you know like it says it creates a secondary incident it, it's a secondary danger zone basically so where accidents are more likely to happen because of those those uh, distractions you know somebody looks down at their phone and it happens to be a gun and, and an eighteen wheeler you know looks up and then doesn't see every car stop. Yeah. Uh, back to the placement of fire trucks on the scene of accident. Most time on our accidents on the highway, in the interstate, are very, very, very heavy damage, very heavy traffic. That's why we have to shut the road down, clean the free off, and up in one lane of traffic. You know? And 
Yeah, and, and I would agree with you on that because, you know, it would have to be depending if you shut the, the shut the whole highway down, you know, how much how much traffic's moving through there, what kind of traffic's moving through there. You know, in my opinion, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be favorable to work in an MBA when in the other lane it's nothing but fuel tankers moving through there or semis. Um, you know. Yeah. MVAs and how to deal with the traffic surrounding them is always really just a case-by-case basis, and that's why I know, for one, I'm super thankful for uh, my department's leadership having so much experience that uh, they can make those quick calls and quick decisions, and it, nine times out of eight, be the correct one. Yeah, it, it can never be a perfect decision every time. Um, doesn't matter who you are. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what department you come from. It's never going to be a perfect decision every time. Um, you know, I'll use I'll use an instance, a uh, certain situation that happened last year, actually last winter. Uh, road froze over here in Texas, uh, probably, oh, I want to say 30, 45 miles from me. Uh, an apparatus ended up getting taken out by a vehicle while they were on scene of an accident. Uh, they parked their apparatus in a straight line. Um, they didn't. They didn't cock it at a forty-five degree angle, and it completely wrecked the whole apparatus. And that's a good now, example of why the NFPA says forty-five degree angle. Yep. And also, NFPA is the golden standard, guys. Also, today there was an incident down in Greensboro. Um, Apparatus got hit by a car while thing parked in the straight line, and but luckily all the firefighters escaped with minimal injuries. I just seen that today, just all of it. So. Well, that's good that everybody escaped with uh, minimal to no injuries. That's, yeah, I definitely agree. It's that's always, always it's best always case scenario. The happy ending uh, stories are the ones that you know we want to hear. Yeah, and you know, um, I will say to any listeners who are on volunteer departments or starting off, um, you know, kind of like Sean, you're you're in your first year, within your first year, um, you know, if you jump on an apparatus and the, the engineer of the apparatus parks it in a straight line, say something to your commanding officer, say something to command and be like, hey, can we park this at a 45 degree angle? And now you're going to know why it's important to park at a 45 degree angle. Yes. Because you're, even your old guys, your old salty guys, salty captains, what you want to call them, will make mistakes, and us young guys will have to help them one day. So, you know, just remind them. Yeah, it's all one thing. Yeah, it's all one thing. Remind them, you know. Just because they're an officer, um, just because they got a white helmet or red helmet, uh, some departments rock the yellow helmets for their officers, just because they've got a different color helmet and a different title. Um, are more experienced, sometimes they're going to forget. So, you know, just, just remind them. Don't, Guess what? They're in our shoes one day, so, I mean, you know, don't be afraid don't, of your officer. You, you know, know, don't walk up to your... Don't walk up to your officer and be like, hey, the NFPA said... Yeah, no, that, that's never the right way to do it. Yeah, that's never the right way. Don't do way. that. And it's mainly just a safety reason. In yeah. reality, it's a safety reason for your apparatuses. It's a safety reason for all your firefighters on scene. Uh, and it also helps guide traffic. That's true. Yeah. You see more you when a apparatus is parked at a forty five degree angle, 
there's a lot more real estate there that is visible to oncoming drivers than just a uh, square back. Because basically, you know, um, Chevron. most stations on the press two trucks I've seen around here in my area have two lots. That's a little too big in lots on each corner, okay? RS truck has two big lots and lots on the square piece, you know, back of the apparatus. Um, you know, it's parked up, you know, in a 45 degree angle. Oh, you'll see the I forgot to relock it. The Chevron patterns that are on the back of uh, more more higher end trucks, uh, even some of the volunteer departments rock the Chevron reflectors on the back. They're, they're not Either. always visible to people. Yeah. The reason that we have the yeah, Chevron. Um, Go ahead. Go on. No, what were you saying? I was just saying, yeah. Um, the Chevrons that we have on our um, engine and squad truck. Um, reason we got those, the engine came with it. You know, it's custom to the truck. Couldn't take it off. It came with it. Our squad truck is a, basically our primary blocker, or you know, what are you gonna call it? blocker truck. Listen, there's no, you know, a bigger apparatus there, but that's yeah. Don't use truck. guys. Don't use your small rush trucks as a blocker truck. Yeah. Um, if you've got a bigger truck, use that. Um, use the bigger trucks, guys. Yeah, use the bigger trucks uh, that you got as a blocker. Don't don't use something itty bitty um, that people are not likely to see. Yeah. Usually, we run three trucks per call, depending on what the call is. We around our squad truck, rescue truck, and engine. So, the minimum should be two. You should be running yeah. two out of your department for any MBA call, and that's the minimum. Um, you know, I understand in some departments where that's not possible. Um, you know, you got the manpower, you know, and you, you got two guys on one truck, and that's it. Um, yep. But, you know, if, if you have the manpower and you have the capability, run two. Run two out of there, use one as your blocker, one as your, your rescue. And if you don't have the uh, manpower, that's when uh, you need to be calling for your uh, next nearest apartment to uh, meet you there for a mutual aid. If Because if you don't have the manpower, then I'm sorry, two people with a single truck are not going to be very helpful at that scene. Yeah, you could have two guys that are 30 years 30 years experience both and that, that ain't gonna mean a thing uh, honestly there's two guys there and that's a lot of work for two firefighters one's gonna have to be directing traffic to wait for PD to show up on scene um, you know and then you know extrications you know if needed working on injuries if needed that's a lot for one guy yeah it is um I got a story for y'all um well back to my story let's talk about manpower since, you know, Jay brought up, you know, two guys can't do a job. Uh, my captain now was on another station about 10 years ago. He was also a captain. Uh, he was on one during the day, had a work construction fire up in his area. It was only him, and he drove a truck there, put in pump gear. He actually got a tack line off, packed up, and went aside to put the fire out. Now, he knew that he had mutual aid coming. 
but there's possible entrapment. So what situation would you do in that, Jay? So, uh, I, <laughs> that's a really hard one, uh, you know, because my training, my training tells me if you're the only one there, um, you're not, you're not supposed to go in. It's two in, two out, not one in, one, one maybe come out. Um, not one in, you know, two out? Yeah, not one out, two out. Um, you know, the bad thing, the bad thing here is there's, there's, there's the human element. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people don't realize with firefighting there's a human element. Um, you know, the human element side of me would say, okay, there's somebody inside there. Um, it's confirmed inside there. And that's another big thing. Is it confirmed or not? You know, is it, is it possible entrapment? Is it, isn't, you know, is it an actual entrapment? Um, you know, even at the maybe, all of us have that human element where it's going to say, okay, there's somebody inside, I got to go get them. Um, but you're, you're putting yourself at a huge risk of not coming out. Uh, you're one guy. Um, what happens if you run out of air? What happens if you go in with a dead bottle uh, and you haven't realized you got a dead bottle? Um, you know, what happens if you go in there and you get trapped yourself? Because now you've just created more of a situation for the mutual aid rep uh, department showing up because now they're going to look at it as, okay, we've got a firefighter in there. Now we have another person in there. So now they're going to have to search for two people. Yeah. So general rule of thumb, I would say this. Um, I would rely on my training, and I would not go in, honestly. you know, And that's, that's going to sound bad to some people, um, but... I would, I would rather do it safely, um, and I would rather get the person that is possibly trapped inside out safely instead of risking my life more and that other person's life more than what their life's already risked. Yeah, what a lot of people who wouldn't like that statement don't think about is thinking about it like this. You have the ability to save a hundred times more people by doing each one safely, making sure you can make it back out to go into the next one compared to just exactly. going in without thinking about it and hoping and praying you come out with just unscathed. It's very slim chances of that working out perfectly. Yeah, I, th I think it's like a probably a 10% success rate, even if that, that if you go in by yourself, that you're going to make it out. And now you've just killed yourself, and you've also killed the person you were supposed to go in there and save. So what good is that actually going to do anyone? Which I totally agree with y'all. I just brought that up just, you know, for manpower, mutual aid, companies coming to help y'all. No, that's a really good, that's a really, really good thing. Um, you know, that kind of brings me to a story that I heard a couple of years back. I think it was my first year on a department. And they were actually talking about this. They were talking about two guys. Uh, they were two officers. It was the assistant chief and the chief of a department. Rolled up on a fully involved structure fire. Uh, was an entrapment. Was an actual confirmed entrapment. Uh, they both went inside. And this was two in, two out. This is the golden standard. Uh, and they both did not make it out. Because they refused to wait for mutual aid. The department, they, they, they didn't go in with any hoses. They just went in with their air packs to try to get this person out, and they did not make it back out. 
that was definitely a mistake not going in without any uh, sort of suppression of any type. Like, even if you don't take a whole uh, line in, even just a water can is something. And something well, see, is even, normally better than here, nothing. Here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Even if there's two of y'all at this scene, you shouldn't be going inside. There's just two of y'all. There's no rip team. There is no there is no backup in case you get trapped. Um, and that just in case for our listeners, that's what a rip team is supposed to do. Usually it's two to three guys, and they all they do is they wait outside for downed firefighters in case they get trapped inside. And uh, um, also to add to that, to add to uh, what a RIT team is for uh, some people who don't know what RIT is, it's Rapid Intervention Team. That's yep. what RIT is. Yeah, Rapid Intervention Teams. Um, and that's their main job is to basically pull out down firefighters. Minimum of two, max of four. Yep, yep. Uh, usually, usually it is going to be, you know, three to four guys. Um you know, I very rarely will ever see a red team with two people on it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, another uh, point about uh, why you shouldn't go in with, uh, if there's only two people on scene and you both shouldn't go in, not only is there no RIT team for if something happens, but who's on the outside keeping an eye on the structure? Because if that structure becomes uh, compromised, if you have proper crew there, if the structure becomes compromised, they'll issue an evacuation tone. If you're the only two people there and you run in, for all you know, you're seconds away from being crushed by that house. Wait, exactly. That's a really good wait. point. I got a point right here. No buildings. No. They get made more compromised. You know, the average classic time for a newer house, you know, Six to eight minutes. The average response time for every station in the United States is six to eight minutes. So when you're arriving to that scene, you're at risk for that structure collapsing once you go inside. So that's one thing. Yeah, and that's actually a really good point. Me me and Sean were talking about that a couple of nights ago. Oh, yeah, Um, the fact that that, uh, the average... uh, the average time it takes for a house to go from just a simple trash can fire to fully involved now compared to 50 years ago, it a house lights up completely fully involved eight times, I think it's eight times faster because of all the uh, plastics and polyesters and cottons and furniture compared to uh, the solid wood that furniture used to be made out of. Now, yes, that still did burn, that still did, you know, it wasn't great, but what we have nowadays is much worse. It lights up like a match. Well, it's much worse, it's much worse for firefighter help, it's much worse for, you know, how fast the house is going to go up, um, it's just bad all around, um, how houses are being made nowadays, um, it's not a good situation. Um, you know, and that, that kind of just the thing is, you know, if there's two of y'all that show up to a house, you know, and it's fully involved, you're, you're, you're taking a chance with death at that point. I mean, because it's, you know, you don't have people. And that was me showing up to a fully involved structure and it's me and another guy. Which, you know, it might happen one day. 
you never know. Not only time will tell, but it's blowing out every orifice of the house, windows, doors, and everything. I'm sorry, viewers, but I know some of y'all might disagree, but I'll hit a horse from New York. No, I ain't gonna risk my life to go inside the house, you know, just enough guy. You know? I'm yeah, gonna be outside. That, I, I, look, I'm gonna do my 360, okay? You know, get a size up, you know, for all of my incoming units. And then I get my hose on. I'm just gonna, you know, hit a horse from New York, so. And that's a good thing. Uh, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. The 360 is that that's that's what you're supposed to do when you first arrive on a structure. If you are first due, first guy on a structure, you do a 360. You cut the power and you cut the gas. Yep. Although I will say uh, to your story, Jay, that you heard a few years ago about uh, two people were the first two there and went in. Um, one thing that is when, because I'm on the city department, when we get a structure fire, we are automatically mutual aided with our rural department because well, yeah, we're both so volunteers. Most, most departments have auto auto mutual aid agreements. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the best way to explain it right there. My station and our neighbor's station, you know, it costs it's seven hundred nine hundred core vehicle. Um, we have an automatic aid agreement, you know, so every yeah, call, I think, we were, I think every that's, that's kind of, I think that's kind of changed over the years. But every call, we get turned up for, they go down to four, we run. You see like a BS call, you know, we'll say at the stations, stand by for the area, you know, while they're on that. Yeah. That's um, how it should be, you know? You should be, you know, bad out of hell out of your station and leave your coach area exposed, you know? And that's what most people don't see, get, you know? Well, see, that's 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 kind of changed over the years, honestly, is, you know, it used to be, it used to be, you know, it was your department only going to your department's calls. And I think the oh, yeah. NFPA finally got wise and was like, you know, hey, you don't really need to start having auto aid calls, you know, and, you know, having these agreements and departments even got wiser and we're like, okay, hey, maybe maybe it's smarter if we reach out to our neighboring department and say, okay, if you get a call, we're getting a call also and vice versa. Well, not only was it the NFPA, but uh, FEMA as well. Um, now, something that I personally recommend that I've done, that I recommend everybody in every emergency service do, is go on to uh, FEMA's website. If you don't have an account, create an account and do their online independent study courses for uh, class 100, 200, 700, and 800. It explains the uh, National Incident Command System, NIMS, and uh, all that. And those four classes cover every part of uh, the National Response System, the National Standard Response System. For any incident, small or large. Yeah, and any basic firefighter, any firefighter around, a volunteer, not volunteer, paid, um, it doesn't matter. You have to have NIMS. Uh, you have to have that. <laughs> that is that is day one stuff. Yeah, now a lot of volunteer departments won't require people get those kind of uh, certifications. If, like, my department does not require it, 
but I do highly recommend it to anybody if you're not required to get it by your department. Even if you're EMS or something. It's free to get. It's all free. Yeah, it's all free. I think it takes like 30 minutes to complete all the classes. Uh, depending. Personally, it took me about. Yeah, it depends on how fast you read. And uh, I'm not going to lie to me, the uh, quizzes were way, way harder than the uh, lesson itself, too. Like, it was easy to go through the lesson. But the quizzes were very difficult to me, so it took me about two attempts per quiz. Um, and it took me about two hours altogether for see, per and, class. And, but I'm glad you brought that up that's as well. just me. The, the, it took you two. It took you two tries. Uh, anybody who takes them, it's unlimited tries. Uh, you could yeah. you could take the test 90, 95 times through FEMA, and they're not going to charge you. They also um, don't mark it, so uh, nobody knows how many attempts you took, so you can either be honest like me and admit it took me my third attempt I finally passed on uh, IS-100, and the uh, other three it took me two attempts apiece. Well, but, um, uh, it, took me all, it, it took me all one time on mine. Um, yeah, so you can either be honest like me and, you know, Admit your shortcomings, or you could be Jay, and uh, we don't know if he's telling the truth or not, but we don't care. <laughs> as long as he can provide the certification that says Jay has completed FEMA IS-100, that's all that matters. Yep. Yeah, and then to any of our listeners who reach out to us and, you know, all these guys, I imagine, you know, we're going to have some firefighters come in and be like, hey, what, what, you know, what certifications y'all have? I will gladly email anyone my certifications. Same. Same. Even though I'm super new, I made sure, because I have ADHD, I'll admit, I well, okay, I have ADD, but let's be honest, it's pretty similar to ADHD. I'm not hyperactive. Has ADHD. Or ADD, or something like that, yeah. So I got, so, you know, when I joined the fire service... When I joined the fire service, I got super hyper-focused on every single aspect of it, point blank, and did a lot of personal research and sought out every certification that I could do at the time, and I completed all of the uh, state and national certifications I possibly could. Um, My station, you know, from day one... I was taking classes, <clears throat> and recently, I just have my ATV, worthiness, emergency response, you know, but my most accomplished class ever was my foster one or two. Yeah, since day one, I was been, you know, I've been grinding. I was, I was just a little 16-year-old boy, except that I was on the station, and had a dream of being a, kind of a firefighter or I'm a volunteer. I, I dream of being a paid job one day. So, yeah, and, you know, I'm glad. I'm glad you brought that up as a young age. Um, you know, and that's one thing I really wanted to talk about tonight is you know these young, younger guys who are 15, 16 years old. You know, they're junior firefighters um, or explorers. Some department call them explorers. Um, you know, you, 
all these all these trucks may seem really cool. Getting a T-shirt may seem really cool. Being at a department may be really cool. You know, some departments have recruiters, you know, kind of like the military. They're going to tell you it's so awesome. It's so great. You know, they're not going to tell you the downside to being a firefighter. And, yeah. Um, and there are downsides to this. You know, it's not it's not all cupcakes and rainbows for us. Wish it was. Right. Like, yeah, it like, uh, right. What sucked for me is uh, I've wanted to be a firefighter ever since I was a little boy, like most of us. Ever since I was a, a little, little boy, I was dressing up and as a firefighter for Halloween, I always wanted to be a firefighter. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but, uh, like, I've always wanted to be a firefighter. When I was 16, I went to my local department. Uh, I'm volunteer paid per call, so I'm a paid volunteer. But uh, my department, unfortunately, did not have an explorer program of any type. So the only way I could join was to uh, graduate high school and be 18 years old. Yeah. But from my station, station, you know, get rid of our junior program uh, right before I joined. And when I joined, I brought some of my friends with me. um, So they brought it back. Now, we're all down to one junior. I've been there for four years, and... Most of my friends that I brought with me left. Well, you know. Yeah, that's an like, issue I had. Like Jay said, like Jay said, it's not all sunshine and rainbows and, you know, pretty unicorns floating around anywhere. Yeah, you're you're, you're going to see some messed up shit. Yeah. yeah. It's going to hard work, dedication, and yes, you're going to see some fucked up shit. Trust me, I mean. You got to have pride in what you do. You know, don't join these departments if you're just looking for a t-shirt or to impress yeah. your girlfriend. And say, hey, look, I'm a firefighter. Um, Because a lot of these departments don't have a lot of money to train people. A lot of these guys don't have a lot of time. And they're going to take all that time and they're going to take some of that training money that they have. And they're going to invest it into you. Yeah, that's one reason. If you're just going to quit it down the road and say two months down the road, you know, you got your T-shirt, you got your badge, you got your, you know, your radio holster. And you, you think you're hot shit. And you're just like, you know what, I'm just going to quit now. Yeah, no, that's one reason why uh, my department uh, didn't have an Explorer program. It used to. But uh, the the interest in the fire service has dimmed so bad that uh, it was not cost-effective enough. And if I wanted to bring it back when I was 16, I would have had to convince nine other people to do it. And I tried. Oh, did I try? But just nobody wants to be in the fire service anymore. It's really sad. We got more guys retiring each year and not enough people to uh, join each department to uh, replace the uh, numbers lost in retirements. Yeah, um, and that, that's, that's true. It's, it's dwindling so bad. Um, I, think, I think numbers are down by like 40% from last year yeah, just yeah, alone. That's just horrible. I mean, no, no one. I, I, I ain't just saying that volunteers are paid, guys. Okay, but you know, people want to get paid. People want to, you know, do it for the money. But the reason I volunteer is because I love my community. I love, my, I love my families. Well, people in my community are my family, okay? And I love my family. Yeah, and I just that's the reason I, why I, I joined. I, I, 
you know, I, I love the communities that I live in. Um, you know, everybody here is like family. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I could care less about the thank yous. I could care less about the money. Um, I just do it for the love of the job. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if I got offered a job to get paid, yeah, I'll take it. But I want to, I want to let that, you know, paid guy, Mr. Badass mentality get to me. Because I know where, where they've been, I know where I've been. Exactly. And that's, that's a really good thing that you said that is, you know, I'm going to break it down for a lot of listeners here. Really super simple for these people. Um, there is a major rivalry between volunteer departments and paid guys. Um, paid guys hate volunteers because I don't know why. Um, volunteers hate paid guys because I don't, I really honestly never understood why, you know, we all do the same job. Um, the only difference is, is one guy is getting paid for it. One guy's not. Um, and then you got the people who are the uh, nice in-betweens like me, who's a volunteer, who's a paid volunteer, which, I mean, just like the other two here, you know, I don't really care about the money. It's, I love my community. I love helping people. And that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to be a firefighter. Like, uh, I got a friend who, once he learned I was a firefighter for the city, was, uh, trying to have me help him join and I was all for it. I was like, yes, somebody else wants to join the fire department. That's amazing. Somebody wants to be a part of the fire service. Here's what else I was going to say on this topic of, you know, paid guys and volunteers, you know, volunteer guys are very humbled. Um, you know, I've yet, I say some, you know, usually about 80% of volunteer guys are very humbled. You know, they, they understand that training's minimal, you know, they don't get a whole lot of training in, um, and they really love doing it. And 90, 90% of them love doing it for their community, um, and that's why they do it. Now, if you go to a paid department and you ask a whole bunch of paid firefighters, why do you do the job? And it's, it's the answer is always for the money. Yeah. That's not the answer. But, you know, you shouldn't be going to do this job just for the money. But guess what? 90, I'll say 90% of volunteer firefighters or more trained in the professional firefighters, you know, because oh, yeah. once you're on a, once you're on a paid, dedicated, paid department, you train for what company you want to say. You're on each company, you train for this, this, and this. Yeah, like and... For this, and this, and this. Hazmat team. You train for hazmat, you know, all that. They see volunteers have to pay for firefighter one, two, you know, all that, all that, because, you know, our next call you don't know what it's going to be. Yeah, and uh, to uh, add to that, and because our time is uh, running up here, I'll try to end us out with uh, adding my little two cents to that. The One of the differences between paid and volunteer when it comes to the training, like you said, volunteers, like you said, we don't know what our next call is going to be. And also, we work hard for it. Because once you start getting paid just to show up, you stop paying attention. You start slacking. A lot of career firefighters will start slacking as they uh, get paid because they feel like they don't have to because they think they already know it. Exactly. That's that's a really good thing to kind of close this out for the night. Um you know, it, it it doesn't matter, guys, you know, if you're paid or not paid. We're all on the same team. We all do the same thing. 
Um, we all fight for the same reasons. Amen. Um, and that's you know, uh, don't 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 be one of those guys. Don't be one of those guys that joins the pay department and then starts instantly talking shit on volunteers. Yeah, um, and that's one of the reasons why uh, we call this the first responder awareness podcast because uh, we all support each other. Whether you're in, whether you're the blue line, the red line, the dispatch, or the EMS, we all gotta love each other and protect each other.